terraforming white noise and science party tricks. All that and more on this week's episode of Ask Science Mike. You've got questions, he's got answers. Even though we may not understand, he'll talk anyway. You've got problems, he won't solve them. But he'll talk and talk and talk until he's blue in the face. Science, faith, and life. Welcome to Ask Science Mike, the weekly podcast where I answer questions about science, faith, and life. I'm your host, Science Mike. My real name is Mike McCarg. I'm a non-scientist, non-expert who reads a lot and does my best to offer authentic insights and reliable answers on your scientific questions using research. That's how it works. Let's get it started. Hey, Mike. So at one of your live shows, you started an answer by saying that this was top shelf knowledge that you reserve for your friends at parties. And um, I want more of that. So I don't know what to ask. I just want you to blow my mind. Thank you. So this is the part of the show where I make a confession, as I often do. Uh, I've, I've learned that most of my job is just being honest about my experiences and feelings and given how much we as a society tend to hide our feelings and our experiences in order to look strong and impressive to other people, the fact that I don't do that as often draws a lot of people to <laughs> listen to me talk. It's a very strange way to make a living, for sure. Uh, my memory is bizarre. It's truly strange um, because I think people have an impression that I have really great memory recall, and I do have pretty phenomenal recall and reading comprehension with a small caveat. I only remember things when I am asked about them. So I literally, if I just try to think, what do I know about stuff? My brain tells me nothing until I ask it something more specific. So I sat for probably an hour and a half trying to think of things that were mind-blowing I knew about science, and I couldn't think of any at all for the entire time. I looked at my bookshelf, and I said, what do I know? And I, I couldn't remember literally anything I knew about science that was mind-blowing or really otherwise. So I had to go into a pretty elaborate time of visualization and role play because, well, that's why I do a question and answer show called Ask Science Mike. I work in response to your questions, not only the content, but what I perceive your emotions are in them. That's amplified at live events, which is why I think those are more entertaining to listen to. And then when I'm at a party, uh, I have lots of feedback to observe in people's body language and their faces and the context of the conversation that prompts me into the, you know, ambiguous infinity of things I could talk about into something that people will actually care about in that moment. So all that to say, I don't know if these things are mind-blowing or not because I don't have any feedback to tell me if they're mind-blowing. Everything is mind-blowing to me. <laughs> Absolutely everything. I buy products and I sit down with the instruction manual and I read the whole thing and I'm 
fascinated every time. So I'm a weird duck. Here's my best shot, though, at four things that I think are amazing that I would kind of consider that top shelf. When I mean top shelf, I mean new in science, not widely talked about, and something I don't really talk about on the podcast either. Uh, So these would just be things I kind of hold and hoard and wait for an opportunity for it to seem appropriate in conversation. Number one, recently scientists encoded using CRISPR-Cas9 an animated film in an E. coli bacterium's DNA. Say, what? Yeah, you know an animated GIF, those little things we text each other now? Uh, They basically made one of those in the DNA of a bacterium using CRISPR-Cas9. They stored that information and made a biological animated GIF. That's what we're up to in biology right now. That's amazing and mind-blowing. Here's another one, number two. Recently, scientists created the first artificial wombs and gestated premature baby lambs in them. Scientists made an artificial womb and gestated baby lambs in them who were born prematurely. And while they were in there, they grew wool and opened their eyes for the first time. And this has incredible promise for advancing uh, neonatal ICUs and situations for human premature births uh, because they're creating a sterile, closed, fluid environment. They're creating a vascular connection uh, to the fetus, and they're actually able to oxygenate that blood flow and insert nutrition and create a sterile, womb-like environment for mammals to grow in an artificial womb. What? That's insane. Here's another one. It appears that our moon, you know, the closest celestial body to our own, used to have an atmosphere because of volcanic activity. The moon, a tiny celestial body with no magnetosphere, once had enough volcanic emissions to create an atmosphere around it. Now, not an Earth-like atmosphere, certainly it's not the kind of place you would want to hang out, but something with atmospheric pressure and gases trapped by gravity around the surface of the moon. Holy cow. Uh, number four, maybe my favorite. Scientists recently discovered that not only can bees count as high as four, but they also understand the number zero. Bees, invertebrates, insects. These are the, not only the first insects, but the first invertebrates who've been shown to understand the value zero. How do you know if bees can count? You give them rewards if they move towards higher or lower assemblages of objects, where you have a pedestal and you have two objects on one, you have four objects of another, and you see how high they can account by putting a reward uh, with the higher collections of objects, and you see if they can understand zero by doing the opposite, training them to always move towards lower numbers of objects until you give them an option of zero. And it turns out once they've been trained, 80% of bees will go to the pedestal with zero objects, meaning they understand that zero is less than 
one or two. So Bs not only can understand values as high as four, they can also understand zero, which is incredibly difficult. Human children learn to count one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten long before we can understand zero. Zero is a very difficult concept for a, a being to model in reality. It's very abstract. So super impressive that bees understand the concept of zero. So there's four top shelf items, I think. CRISPR-Cas9 used to put an animated GIF in the DNA of a bacterium, an artificial womb raising uh, mammals that were born prematurely. Our moon used to have an atmosphere, and bees can not only count to four, they can understand zero. What do you say we hang out? You and I. I'd love that. Would you like that? I think it'd be fun. Well, there's some opportunities coming up. May the 7th, I'm going to be in Minneapolis for a conference called Jesus Rode a Dinosaur, Faithful Youth Ministry in a Scientific Age. Uh, None other than Krista Tippett will also be appearing there, along with some notable scientists and researchers, including a couple of friends of mine from BioLogos. I'm super excited about that. I'd love to see you there. Now, if you're not in youth ministry, but you'd like to see me while I'm in Minneapolis, no big deal, because... Uh, The evening of May 7th, I'm doing the Battle of the Podcasts, Science Mike versus Trip Fuller from Homebrewed Christianity. So if you'd like to hear us nerd out, and I think kind of a game show format, that's going to be happening, and that's free and open to the public. Minneapolis, I'd love to see you May 7th. May 25th and 26th, the Liturgist Gathering is happening in Austin, Texas. This is a big announcement This is going to be our first liturgist gathering in Texas, which is our most requested stop. So grab your tickets fast. They went on sale yesterday, and we've already sold a bunch of tickets for the liturgist gathering in Austin. I'd love to see you there. July 27th, of course, I'll be at the Skylight Festival in Brant, Ontario. That's for you Canadians. I'd love to see you. No need to pull out the passport for that one. Uh, And then October 5th and 6th, we'll be doing the Liturgist Gathering in London, England. So crossing the Atlantic there. And you can get information about all those events by going to AskScienceMike.com and clicking the menu item labeled Events. Our next question came in via email, and it reads, Mike, what are your thoughts on terraforming? I've been watching more and more Netflix and YouTube videos on space, time travel, etc. In one of them, they mentioned how planets may have formed, dust gathering together in an orbit to form a planet. Could we expedite or craft that process? Is there merit in potentially terraforming another Earth, even in our own solar system? I don't know. This all blows my mind. I should have went into astronomy and post-secondary and gotten paid a relatively same amount as I currently am to dream. Oh man, I love astronomy. I love space exploration. I love science fiction around those themes. And so I have spent an unreasonable amount of time in my life thinking about terraforming. Now to start off, traditionally, terraforming generally refers to the process of manipulating another planet's climate and topography 
to make it more Earth-like. It's, I, I think in some cases, terraforming has referred to the creation of a planet from scratch. But in most science fiction and in most scientific discussions, terraforming is all about atmospheres. For example, we talk about colonizing Mars. And if you wanted to colonize Mars, you would begin by creating pressurized domes on Mars' surface or pressurizing caves and caverns underneath the surface of Mars, which would help protect you from solar radiation, by the way. But you can't really scale a population to any vaguely Earth-sized quantity using those techniques. So there is the idea, could we transform Mars' atmosphere to be more like Earth? And it is theoretically possible. The first thing you would need would be a magnetosphere. On Earth, we have a wonderful molten core in the center of our planet that creates a magnetic field, and that magnetic field protects our planet and our atmosphere from solar radiation. Uh, When planets don't have that, like our moon or like Mars, Mars, we believe, used to have a magnetosphere but lost it billions of years ago, the solar wind, these continuous particles coming from the sun, slowly leach away your atmosphere. So right now, if we started to create a thicker or denser atmosphere on Mars than currently exists, it would just blow away again. So theoretically, NASA scientists believe it would be possible to use a spacecraft to generate a protective magnetosphere. Of course, you'd need to do that for a very long time because once you have a protective magnetosphere, it's going to take a very long time, probably starting by seeding Mars with bacteria to create a runaway greenhouse effect. You'd want to produce a lot of methane and you'd want to create a much thicker carbon dioxide situation on Mars than currently exists. If this sounds familiar, it's because we're currently accidentally terraforming Earth and we're making it much more like Earth was um, in the age of the dinosaurs and at times when the Earth has had no ice on it at all, which, by the way, has never happened while there's humans on Earth. And we know that rapid changes are destructive to ecosystems. So uh, we're basically would want to do on purpose and to a greater extent on Mars what we're accidentally doing now. Now, do we have the capacity to do that intelligently, to create a um, sustainable Earth-like atmosphere on Mars? I don't know, and I don't think anyone does. On other planets, say Venus, you'd want to do the opposite. Venus has a runaway greenhouse gas effect where the planet is so hot that lead melts on the surface of Venus. Uh, Venus is closer to the Earth than Mars, It has a much more similar gravity well. So as a candidate for terraforming, in many ways, it seems to make more sense. But we'd have to do something different there. Again, probably involving heat-loving bacteria to start uh, breaking down carbon dioxide in the atmosphere of Venus and slowly thinning the Venusian... Venuvian? Venusian? I don't know. The atmosphere of Venus. Okay? That's what terraforming traditionally applies to and those are incredibly difficult problems to solve they involve engineering that is currently far beyond the means of our species i think we have the theoretical science understood the engineering and 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 how specifically 
We would cultivate and culture the appropriate species of bacteria, uh, also not there. But all of that would be very simple compared to creating a planet from scratch. Uh, so if you had, you know, say we went to the asteroid belt where we have some dust and we have asteroids more readily available, and we said, okay, based on our understanding of planetary formation, all that happened is a lot of these things started banging together. So we're going to bang them together on purpose. Conceptually, that's very simple. You just put asteroids on collision trajectories with each other. Uh, maybe start with some larger ones um, and you know smash them together. And while they're molten, smash them with some more. Uh, the problem here is you would need an absolutely incredible, unfathomable, <laughs> unfathomable, you know, when I recorded my audiobook, I could not say unfathomable, and I still can't right now. Uh, anyway, you would need a whole bunch of asteroids to make something planet-sized, and the amount of rocket fuel and spacecraft you would need to do that, oh gosh, I couldn't even begin to estimate. And even assuming you did that, once you created a planet from scratch, guess what? You just have a molten ball of lava. And depending on the chemical composition of the asteroids you used to create this molten ball of lava in the first place, it may start creating its own atmosphere, which you then have to turn around and terraform. So as fascinating... Oh, oh, by the way, yeah, and you would also need a magnetosphere. So if, you, if your newly formed planet didn't get a molten iron core um, and it and it didn't produce a magnetosphere, your attempts to create an atmosphere are going to be doomed by the solar wind over time. So what does this tell me? I actually agree that it's important for us to colonize other worlds, um, but not as like an escape hatch for global warming here, uh, really to protect from something like an asteroid strike, just to have some conscious humans that maybe could rebuild intelligent life in our solar system. Uh, in terms of confronting global warming, the only thing that makes sense is to confront global warming on Earth. Earth following the most runaway global warming scenarios we can imagine. Even Earth following total nuclear war is far more accommodating to human life and every life on Earth than any other body in our solar system. It would be easier to make the Earth closer to it is now after runaway global warming or after nuclear war than it would be to terraform Mars or Venus or any other body in our solar system or any body we have seen in a telescope. The Earth is precious and we've got to take care of it. So, And that starts by not accidentally terraforming it with global anthropomorphic climate change. science mike i've heard that sleeping with the radio or the tv on is not good for your brain but i'm wondering about white noise or a box fan uh, my whole family sleeps with a box fan and i'm uh, just wondering if that does anything bad to your brain thanks i have genuine concerns that sleep hygiene and sleep practices might be one of the more pressing public health issues we have in Western society today. 
And that problem extends across all sorts of demographic boundaries and socioeconomic statuses. Uh, we don't sleep, and we don't sleep well, and we don't sleep for long enough. So I like that you are examining sleep practices and thinking what is healthier and what is less healthy. Let me subtly reframe the question. I don't want to talk about good for the brain, bad for the brain, uh, because everything, everything has mixed effects on our brains. So let's talk about instead what might be more or less healthy, okay? So we know that leaving the radio on and leaving the television on uh, as you go to sleep and while you're asleep reduces sleep quality. Uh, You tend to stay in lighter stages of sleep. If you've trained yourself to fall asleep with the radio or the TV, it does help you fall asleep. It does not help you stay asleep, and it reduces the quality of your sleep. The light flickering from the television, the human noises that come from radio and television, your brain continues to process those sounds while you are asleep. And we also understand that um, the emotional content of sounds, the brain processes while we're asleep, and things that sound more meaningful to us are more likely to wake us up. That's why you you might be able to sleep through someone snoring but you wake up when your child cries across the house because your brain is still, it's not just measuring volume while you're asleep. Your brain is evaluating the content of sounds. Now, what about white noise? Well, surveys, not surveys, but studies have shown that when you have white noise playing while you're sleeping, it helps you fall asleep faster and it helps you stay asleep And we would call that beneficial or more healthy. One theory researchers have about why white noise works so well is it reduces the difference between sudden sounds and ambient sounds while you're asleep. So if you've got a constant sound from a a noisemaker or a fan or the air conditioning and then there's a click or a bump in your house, the difference in volume is not as much as a, a click in your house and silence or a click in your house and a box fan. And so your brain has an easier time kind of just rolling over the sound and not bring you up into a, a, a less deep sleep state or indeed all the way to waking you up. Uh, so that's, that's going to give you a better chance to sleep through it undisturbed, to stay in a deeper sleep state. And if you have difficulty falling asleep or staying asleep, uh, that, that ambient sound of white noise really will help mask activity. So anything that makes that kind of purring, constant sound, um, like a sound conditioner, a sound machine, air purifiers, uh, air conditioners, anything that makes that droning sound is going to be consistent and soothing that helps you stay asleep. Um, And they've actually tested this in ICUs. ICUs are terrible sleep environments But when in studies and trials, they've introduced white noise into ICUs, people sleep longer and they sleep deeper and they wake up less often. Now, I'm a person who sleeps really soundly when I'm home. But as I travel more and more, the different noises different hotels and different cities make mean I tend to sleep less soundly. But if I take my phone and I play white noise, as long as I also play white noise while I'm at home, I sleep 
much deeper and I wake up more rested. So don't worry. Uh, your your intuition here that uh, and what you've heard about radio and TV are correct. But your box fan, as far as we can tell in research today, is actually helping you fall asleep and stay asleep. And science says that's better for your brain. Our last question came in via email and it reads, Hi, Mike. As I transitioned from a person whose life was almost entirely centered on their Christian faith to one who has more doubts about that faith and is open to atheistic understandings of the world, I find that I seem to have more religious baggage than I would have ever realized. For example, I am sometimes hounded by thoughts that by departing from a faith-centered life, I am missing out on who I am created to be and will thus miss out on life's best. Or that, although many of my daily habits are still similar, I am now living a life of sin of which I should be ashamed. I end up living in a tension between accepting the weak faith slash agnostic slash mystic person who I am right now and between listening to those hounding thoughts and turning back to my conservative religious roots. I guess my questions are the following. Did you have to deal with religious guilt as you transitioned from Baptist Mike McCarg to Science Mike? If so, what advice do you have for dealing with those things? Are there networks in the brain that want to resist such a change of life philosophy? Lastly, do you ever wish you could go back to your old lifestyle? Thanks so much for all your work. I look forward to all that is to come this year. Nate. Well, Nate, I dealt with a lot of guilt, religious guilt, uh, in my transition from being Southern Baptist to whatever the hell I am now. Um, yeah, I've, I've felt all the time. Uh, at the same time that my knowledge about the world was growing and my understanding of people from different vantage points in life deepened. Uh, but yeah, I worried constantly that I was rejecting God, even after I didn't believe in God anymore. Our brains are compli- complicated things. Uh, and, and, and our thoughts and our feelings and our opinions, they come from a lot of different brain structures that have different jobs and that see the world differently. And so the parts of your brain that are associated with emotional comfort and social identity, well, they're much more resistant to view the world in a new way than your cognitive hardware. I mean, your neocortex is obsessed with checking out things from a different angle. So yeah, you feel guilty. I've used this analogy many times on the program, but it just works so well. Jonathan Haidt, a researcher, talks about the mind and the brain as an elephant and a rider, where your conscious mind is a rider on the back of an elephant and your unconscious mind is an elephant. And no matter how hard you pull the elephant sometimes, it won't listen and it takes a familiar path. And in this case, religious ideas and imagery and identity are a familiar path that has been conditioned into your unconscious mind. And so it seeks them for comfort. So be patient with yourself. You're not a computer. You're not some rational observer. You're a social primate. 
You find comfort in things that are familiar. You find comfort in community. And if you've recently departed from those communities, it will take time for your social identity to change. It will take time for you to grieve. Give yourself the space and the grace to grieve. I still grieve sometimes. I'll see something on social media. Something will come up in conversation that reminds me of some of my friends back home in the Southern Baptist tradition. And I miss those people. I'd love to sit down and talk with them about what's going on at work, what's happening with their children, what's happening at their church. Oh, that'd be lovely. But for many of my former dear friends, uh, I'm a false prophet and a heretic and a danger to people everywhere. (laughs) So that, you know, they would not be comfortable with that conversation. They would be much more concerned about the existential threat I face uh, or I offer towards people's souls. So do I ever wish I could go back to my old lifestyle? I don't wish I could go back to my old lifestyle. I don't wish I could be a Baptist again. I have a a longing for those friendships and for reconciliation with those friends. But I rather like not having to feel so confident that I have God figured out or the world figured out. I, I like the listening posture I have now. I like a life where my curiosity doesn't have to have guardrails. I like that I can accept my friends who are lesbian, gay, bisexual, trans, intersex, queer, asexual, as they are, without the need to judge them. I like that when I have friends who live together but aren't married, I don't judge them. I like that my worldview more embraces fundamental human dignity now. And that's not to say that Southern Baptists or evangelicals don't respect human dignity or that I respect human dignity more than they do. I am speaking specifically about the Southern Baptist I was and the non-theistic mystic I am now. Wishing for things as they were is generally not productive for me. And I say that as someone with a brain injury who very often misses that shiny brain I had before I fell off of a motorcycle. But an acceptance of how things are and an openness to where they are going has helped me find a more grounded, more centered, and more contented life today. For that, I am deeply grateful. But I could have never gotten here without taking weeks and months and years to grieve and to process the dramatic changes that happened in my life. And so, Nate, my wish for you is that you would take weeks and months and years to accept the changes in your life, to be grateful for the path that brought you there 
and to look toward the future with optimism and with hope. I don't know if it takes a village to raise a child, but I know it takes a village to make a podcast. So I'd like to thank all of you who make Ask Science Mike possible. Starting with my patrons on Patreon. There are people who choose to send me a dollar a month or five dollars a month to keep this show going. And they not only do that, but every week they vote to pick the questions that appear on the program. And I am so grateful to all of you, especially to those of you who've joined us in the last few weeks. That's incredibly encouraging to see uh, the patrons for Ask Science Money grow. Uh, and make this podcast possible. Of course, I'd also like to thank Andrew Galucky for his work in pre-production on Ask Science Mike, the incredible Greg Nordine, Ask Science Mike's producer, and our theme show songwriter, Jeb Bodiford, the man himself. Thank you, Jeb, for this wonderful song. And thank you all for listening. I'll talk to you next week.